Hello, and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman, and this is the place for will writers, estate planners, and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools, and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 24, entitled The Noisy Client. the noisy client. What is all this about then? Well, I mentioned that we would return to the subject of handling difficult clients in one of the earlier episodes, and I'm ticking off the topics that I have promised. So, let's start with a few definitions. Here is the dictionary entry for the word noise. Definition one, an unpleasant sound, a loud, surprising, irritating, or unwanted sound. For example, that noise is very distracting to the students. Definition two, any sound or combination of sounds. For example, can you hear that noise? Definition three, an outcry, loud clamor, or commotion concerning something. For example, there was a great deal of noise on social media about the tax rises. And definition four, a complaint or protest about something. For example, this noise will continue until there is a change in company policy. There are a number of specialised additional definitions of the word, but you can see where we're going with this. Other than for definition two, which was any sound or combination of sounds, which is pretty neutral, the word noise tends to have negative connotations. And just listen to the derivation of the word. It comes from 13th century French, meaning uproar or brawl. Believed to have come from late Latin, nausea, meaning discomfort, which is from the Latin for seasickness. And ultimately from Greek, naus, meaning ship. And that is the source of the word nausea, as well as the word nautical. So yes, some very definite negative connotations with this word. And that's what I mean when I say a noisy client. It's a client that is causing an uproar, is complaining, is irritating and distracting. They take your attention. They cost you time. They're on the phone constantly nitpicking every smallest thing, changing their minds about instructions, asking quite irrelevant questions. You get the picture. I want to start out here by trying to categorize the noisy client into two types. The first would be the chronically noisy client, and the second might be called the created noisy client. By chronically noisy client, I mean that they're simply always that way. They are noisy by nature. No matter what you do, you will simply not satisfy the permanently chronically noisy client. Whereas the created noisy client would be one that is ordinarily quite amicable and rational, but has become noisy because of something that perhaps you have done. Let's take our chronically noisy client first. One of the issues here is that this type of person might appear to be relatively amicable when you're with them face to face. There are often some signs and rumblings of the storm on the horizon And you might start to see this when you're conducting your fact find and instruction taking. 
for example, having a somewhat abrasive tone, or perhaps they challenge you on your advice. In and of itself, this isn't anything to be concerned about, but might be an indicator of things to come if not handled appropriately. However, the permanently noisy client gets significantly braver and more aggressive when they are not face-to-face -face with you. If you're challenged at the appointment, or if the client does appear to be slightly confrontational about something when you are with them in person, I'd strongly suggest that you don't shy away from that. This type of personality, the strong-intentioned, firm person, can be quite persuasive by the strength of their intention and can start to take control of the meeting if you're not careful. Let me give you an example. You're addressing the concept of LPAs with Mr. Smith and you're pointing out their uses. You establish that he would expect his son to be the one who would assist him if he lost capacity. And you indicate that his son would need the legal power conveyed by the LPA in order to be able to help him deal with his affairs. To which Mr. Smith says, My son, Sam, would handle things if he needed to. He's perfectly able to sort everything out. You say, Great, that's perfect. Well, in that case, let's make sure that he's got the legal power to do exactly that. To which Mr. Smith responds, Well, you seem to be suggesting here that my son is incapable of handling my affairs if he needed to. You get the confrontational, aggressive stance that the client is taking here. You've not suggested that at all. He's twisted what you've said to a negative that was not implied by your advice. And this is a key indicator. If the person is going to twist something that you have said to a negative, and particularly immediately after you've said it, well, imagine what they might do when they've got a little bit of time that's intervened. Another key indicator that you have a chronically noisy client is the rejection of your advice, and particularly when it's done in a way that makes you wrong in order to make them right. For example, you're with a couple and you've talked them through the what-if scenario if one of them passes away, leaving everything to the other, and then the survivor remarrying and the children losing the entire inheritance, otherwise known as sideways disinheritance. The client has understood this concept and you suggest that the client includes a property protection trust in the will to provide some protection. As you're explaining what this means, the client interrupts you to say that they just want you to do a basic will and says, if I'm going to do anything about my property, then, well, I'll speak to a solicitor about it. Now, this is obviously quite rude and it doesn't really make sense. As you know, you're bringing this up because it's something that you can handle. You can put this solution in place. Finally, look at the client's life and circumstances. Look and listen to them and their level of responsibility. I had a client many years ago who was telling me about their circumstances prior to taking instructions. He was complaining about how his ex-wife had been lying to him about finances and had caused him financial trouble. He went on to tell me that he'd lost his job because his boss had been having an affair and had promoted the lady that he was seeing over my client and they had conspired to get rid of him. He was blaming others for things that had happened to him and he was very bitter about these situations. Coupled up with this, he was somewhat critical about my company in a kind of underhanded way. And again, these are indicators. Now this might sound harsh, but if you're getting these vibes and you're spotting these issues 
twisting your communication to a negative, rejecting your advice in a way that makes you wrong, not taking responsibility things that have happened to him or to her, well, I'd strongly suggest walking away. If you've already taken instruction, produced drafts, and the client then starts to kick up a fuss, especially in an irrational way, refund them and go and see somebody that does want your help. These types of client will eat into your time. They'll eat into your confidence, which is very destructive, and they're simply not worth it. Let's move on to the created noisy client. This is someone that hasn't given the above indications, but has become noisy during the course of the service. Something's happened that has made them change. You have to bear in mind that you don't know what's going on in that client's life. A client can call you and can express upset at the service when in fact they are simply upset with something else. They've had a particularly bad day that started out with somebody being angry at them on the phone at work. Then they've had an argument with a shopkeeper that gave them the wrong change and was insistent that it had been a £5 note and not a £10 note that had been given to them. They'd been cut up on the road by someone and not recognising their own foul mood, they've picked up the first draft of the will that you've written for them and they've spotted that their son's name is spelled incorrectly. Now, on a normal day, when they're in a good mood, they would probably have simply sent you an email to say, thanks for the draft, just one thing, my son's name is Stephen, spelt with a V, not with a PH. But in their bad mood, they're immediately certain that they made a point of spelling out this name to you. This is the final straw in their bad day, and with their temper raised, they start seeking further justification for their bad temper. They spot that the heading to one of the clauses appears at the bottom of the page, but the actual text of the clause appears on the next page. They feel that this is poor formatting of the document and this fuels their dissatisfaction. You've spelled acknowledgement with the American spelling, omitting the second E, which might be bad form in the UK, but is still basically acceptable. And that's it now. They're adamant that your service is just one more reason why the world is against them. It's worth recognising that people need to feel that they are at cause rather than at effect in their life. And here's one aspect of their life that they feel they can have an effect on. They can't go out and find that driver that cut them up. They lost the argument with the shopkeeper. The angry customer that they had on the phone was passed over to their boss to handle. But this, well, they can do something about this. So they take their frustrations out on you, sending a critical email about your lack of attention to detail. I'll give you a real life example that always stands out in my mind of the noisy client. I had a case in which the testators had two children together, but the wife had two children from a previous marriage. Mister had two nephews that he was very close to, but his wife didn't really have much to do with them. They also each had a godchild that they wanted to benefit from their wills. And finally, Mrs. had a sister that she wanted to leave some money to as well. It was a large estate, so there was plenty of money to go around. And the way that they had described the distribution was by way of various pots of money. Pot one was to go in unequal shares between four people. Pot two was essentially to go to the children that they had together and that was to be distributed on first death. But if those children predeceased, 
that pot had a completely different distribution depending on which test data survived. Finally, pot 3 was to go in small percentages to 7 different people. And again, there were different substitute distributions for that pot depending on which of the 7 people remained alive. It was very, very complicated. It actually took me several hours and a very large whiteboard to work this out. And I finally figured out a mathematical way of simplifying this spider's web of distribution and was actually extremely pleased with myself for having worked it out. It was quite a win. I proudly sent out this draft with a thorough explanation of how I'd constructed the will and had expected to receive a glowing review at the genius that had been applied to this conundrum. But no, I got the opposite. This is nothing like what we discussed. I want my money back. Wow, what a letdown. I'll tell you exactly how I handled that in a moment, but firstly just one other example. This was a single lady that was making a will. I'd sent out the first draft by post, and a week later received the draft will back in the post along with a handwritten letter from the lady. The draft will itself was covered in red pen, words crossed out, notes in the margin, arrows pointing to different sections, underlined words with big question marks next to them. I was horrified. I had a moment of, oh my goodness, what have I done? It looked like a horror show of errors and complaint. And the letter that accompanied this scribbled on draft was highly critical. When I actually picked apart the issues that the lady had, which wasn't easy, what it seemed to come down to was actually one error which was along the lines of putting number 24 instead of number 42 on an address, and one other error which was to do with the spelling of a quite obscure African village where this lady had spent some time doing missionary work in her younger years. This was a gift of a particular ornament from that village, and the name of the village was long, it was highly unfamiliar, and yes, I'd made a mistake of one letter in its spelling. If you saw this place name, you'd probably forgive me for the error. Everything else, every other arrow, underlined word, crossed out word, notes in the margin, they were all of the overcritical or misunderstood variety. This was back in the days when words like persterpes would be used much more often than the plain English words that tend to get used today. So the client had circled persterpes and put a large question mark next to it. She'd crossed out some of the standard elements of the clauses that always get included, such as the administration of the estate clause that would say something like, my trustees shall pay any debts and funeral expenses to which the client had crossed out the word debt and put a note in the margin to say, I told you I don't have any debts. You get the picture. So how to handle this? Well, unlike the chronically noisy client, the created noisy client can often be handled. The first thing that you mustn't do is react. Your natural reaction might be to yourself lash out and attack the irrationality. But let's face it, you're not going to win that. Even if you succeed in proving that you're right and they're wrong, it isn't going to leave a very positive feeling for the client. When was the last time that you were proved wrong in an argument and you were left feeling great about that? To get agreement, you have to agree, not disagree. Which is counterintuitive in this type of situation. How do you agree with someone 
when the other person is essentially wrong, that's pretty difficult. So I'll give you a couple of examples of how to do that in just a moment. The next thing to do is to make a decision. Do you actually want to continue to deal with this client? Do you want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they have simply misinterpreted something, misunderstood something, has had a bad day and is irrationally taking it out on you? Or do you want to simply not engage with someone that could themselves react that way? It's a legitimate question. If you have plenty of other clients that want and appreciate your help, you might not want to spend your time handling this matter as it can take some time to do. But in my experience, it is usually worthwhile as someone that can be so vocal in criticizing can also be very vocal in giving praise too and can feel that they need to repay what they've done often by giving you referrals and positive reviews. If you do decide not to engage further, simply refund and do so with some humility. Don't concede that you're wrong. If you're not, you can politely point out your viewpoint, but with an offer of refunding. If you're going to try and handle the situation, then here's some tips that I have found very workable. You may recall from the chronically noisy client that I said that they tend to get a lot braver and more aggressive when they are not face to face with you. So I would strongly suggest, if at all possible, that you get back out to see the client. Your starting point for that meeting has to be to let the client talk and for you to listen attentively. Don't interrupt, don't argue, let the client download on you. Eventually, they will run out of steam. At which point, the best thing you can do is agree. Find something to agree with. You're right, Mrs. Smith. That agreement takes the wind out of their sails. They're expecting you to argue and to point out how they are wrong. Hearing you say that they are right, ironically, gives them the mental space to also be wrong. Just think about it for a moment. Turn the tables around. You say to somebody else, you don't spell acknowledgement that way. You've made a mistake. Now, if they say, well, it's an American way of spelling it, but it's still acceptable. That's a disagreement, isn't it? They're disagreeing with you. You're likely, therefore, to want to keep justifying your position, aren't you? Well, we don't live in America. It might be acceptable, but it's wrong. Yes, it might be understandable to the courts and it wouldn't invalidate the will, but it reflects badly on me. You seek to find more ways that you're right in your standpoint. Whereas if the other person was to say, you're right. In British English, you're 100% correct. Now you feel, well, properly heard and understood and you're in a comfortable position. The person has agreed with you. And you can now much more easily see the other person's viewpoint and can listen to what they have to say without feeling the need to reinforce your own point. Let's go back to the complicated distribution client that I referred to earlier. That client had come to see me in my office. So when I received his, this is not what we discussed, I want my money back message, I sent a message back to him saying, yes, you're right, 100%, I agree with you. This is not what we discussed. You'd explained the three pots of distribution and that's what we discussed. The way I've done it is totally different. I spent ages and ages trying to get the wording right with the three pots and trying to make it work legally. 
and I ended up taking this totally different route, which I did try to explain in the covering letter, but maybe that explanation itself wasn't clear, in which case I apologise. It might be that I got so lost in the detail that I wasn't clear about the solution that I'd used. Anyway, let's get together to discuss it. I can pop out to see you or you can come to see me in the office again if that is easier. If you want a refund, that's fine. I can do that for you and I'll need to get some cancellation paperwork done to process that. But let's just meet up again and see if we can straighten this out. You see, I knew that I'd explained my solution in the covering letter that I'd sent out with the draft will. And I knew that my solution was workable. So I was on pretty solid ground. Sure enough, the client came back out to see me in the office and brought the draft and the covering letter and he admitted that he hadn't really read the covering letter and that actually he could see how I'd simplified the three pots distribution. He still wasn't quite as glowing in his praise as I would have liked but he did actually apologise for reacting too quickly and sure enough I have had subsequent referrals from him. On the other case with the African village I got the agreement to go back out to see this lady. We sat down, no cup of tea was offered this time, and I let her get angry with me for five or ten minutes. She was really quite critical, and I did have to bite my tongue a little, but I paid attention, and I didn't interrupt. And when she finished, I simply said, you're right. Now just to interject at this point, one absolutely vital tip here, pay attention to this, it can absolutely change everything. I said, you're right. And then I stayed silent. I didn't say, you're right, however, or, well, you're right, but... I said, you're right, and I shut up. I let that sink in. I'm not arguing with her. I'm not interjecting any other thoughts that I have or counter-arguments. I simply said, you're right. Now think about that for a moment. In her mind, she's right about what she's saying. She wouldn't say it otherwise, would she? So I agreed with her. The next thing I said was, you know, one of the most difficult aspects to my job is trying to take clients' intentions, which are expressed in plain English, and then putting those intentions into a form of words that the courts like. Bearing in mind this was 15 or 20 years ago, when will writing software was much more legalistic and full of the persterpes and envontrosomeres. She was hostile and antagonistic about the will that I'd produced. So, I was hostile and antagonistic about the way the legal system seemed to insist upon archaic language. I was, to that degree, also in agreement with her, you see. It only took a few moments once I'd given that response for me to see that there was some relief from her. Some of that tension just dissipated. I wasn't arguing with her. Once I could see that, I continued and said... Let's take a look at this and see if we can break it down point by point. I then proceeded to go through every line of the will, reading out every word and picking up on every underlined word, circled word, question mark, arrow and comment that she'd put on that draft. I took my own clean draft of the will and my own red pen. I knew, of course, that there were only two actual errors on the draft. So, those were the ones that I underlined on my copy as we went through it, and put the correct spelling of the African village and the correct number of the address in the margin. Once we'd been through every question that she had and every line in the will, I pointed out that I would do a new draft for her to read through and that I'd make those two corrections, 
She could now see, very clearly and in writing, that what she had been so critical of was actually not bad at all. Now, this lady didn't actually apologise for having been so negative and so overly hostile in her letter, but she did thank me for coming out to see her again and explaining everything. And she even offered me a cup of tea before I left. So, let's just summarise this then. You have the chronically noisy client. If you can identify them, get rid of them. If they don't respond positively to the method that I've described in this episode, they'll never be happy and they will just cost you in the end. For the created noisy client, it's created because there is often something that you've done. You have to obviously take some responsibility yourself for anything that you have done wrong, any errors, anything that perhaps has been misinterpreted that you could have explained better. You have done something to create that noise. So in that situation, when you have your work criticised, first thing not to do is react. Don't react. Don't send that angry email that you really feel like sending. Take some time just to calm down. Then decide whether or not you want to continue with this client or not. If you do, try to get out to see them again so that you can address their concerns face to face. Then start that meeting by letting them talk and tell you their concerns without you interrupting or commenting or justifying your position and definitely without disagreeing with them. Then agree. Find at least something to agree about and let that agreement sink in. And then you can calmly and logically take them through each point that they've made so that they can look and they can observe for themselves without the need to justify their position. Okay, so that is a slightly longer than usual episode, but one that I hope you found useful. It's never nice to get a complaint or a request for a refund, so I hope this goes some way towards giving you a solution and possibly some hope that all is not lost when something like that comes along. Try this and see how that goes. Thank you once again for downloading and listening to this episode. If you've not done so already, please do like and subscribe to the podcast. You'd be surprised just how much of a difference that does make. And don't forget, this this whole podcast is essentially the promotion of good practice and improvement in estate planning on the whole. And the better the service that estate planners and will writers and solicitors give to their clients, the better that is for all of us. The more the general public can rely on good service from professionals in this arena, the more confidence that promotes for all of us. So do please share this with your colleagues and your professional community. In two weeks' time, it's Christmas, and in three weeks' time, it's New Year. I'm not sure if I'm going to get the chance to record another episode over that period. I might, but no promises. If I don't, then let me wish you all the very best for Christmas and the New Year, and I will look forward to speaking to you again in 2024. Until then... Thank you for listening.